morning. Good to see each of you. When I went to get my body pack, I was told there was no AV this morning. The good news on that is I didn't even prepare a slide, slides to go along with the sermon, but it also uh, brought to mind other places I preached. And recently in Armenia, we, I preached at a hotel conference room, and the Sunday morning after I preached there, the Orthodox Church, not evangelical, shut that church down and talked to the hotel owner who was a believer but intimidated him to have the church kicked out. And then the following, we canceled the next Sunday because they did not have a place to meet. And then the Sunday after that, I was able to preach, be the first person to preach in their new building, which was like four levels up in a house on the top of a roof, basically. It was enclosed. And so not having AV is not a huge problem. Uh, I've preached on makeshift runways in Sudan without any audio or video in the sun on the edge of slums in Kenya under thatched roofs in Zambia. And so we still have a lot, don't we? And we're not the only ones with problems. I went to pick up my mobile order at Starbucks, right? And there was a sign that says, I'm sorry, only drive-through orders. Sorry for the inconvenience. And so I ended up getting behind two very slow vehicles that were getting pup cones. Right? Little cones of whipped cream for dogs. And instead of pulling away, they're like giving it to the... And I'm like, I'm going to be late. First world problems, right? And yet that's also a glimpse of the culture we've been called to minister to. We have everything. And I would love for Highlands, whether we have five people here or 5,000 people here, to be a place where people can hear the truth of Jesus. Do you know that our Lord is a faithful vine dresser? Sometimes He takes His pruning knife and He holds it very carefully, very deliberately, and He prunes. And not all loss of growth is a necessary pruning But we have to understand the Lord loves His church more than we do. He gave His life for the church. And don't be disheartened and use inaccurate gauges of success, of energy and attendance and popularity. Read the Old Testament prophets. They weren't popular. Nobody was having Jeremiah in in to keynote a conference. They weren't. Jonah saw the largest revival in his day, and yet he was disobedient to the Lord. And he hated his congregation. Can we start evaluating things with the eyes of faith through the words of God on what pleases Him? It helps me as a preacher to examine other men's ministries. And I don't mean structures or campuses or number of people, but what they did and how it aligned with God's words. Do you know that we already gathered together in Christ's name? Ecclesia, called out ones, the church. And we did the things already that the New Testament has admonished us to do as His local body. 
We have edified one another through singing, and we've worshipped God in spirit and in truth. We have read the Scriptures publicly. We have prayed. Read First and Second Timothy. These are the instructions given to the church. And we are about to have the Word preached to us. And I hope we have every intent not just to listen to the words preached, but to obey what we hear. I'm especially interested in preachers from the Bible because that's the only inspired, God-breathed-out record of ministry. What did they do? And John the Baptizer is one of those men. John, interestingly, read for us this morning about John the Baptizer. He is different than the Apostle John who wrote one of the accounts of the Gospels. John the Baptizer was the forerunner I love looking at his ministry because his ministry ended with him doubting the very message he preached. His ministry ended with him in a Roman prison questioning whether Jesus was even the Messiah. His ministry ended not with a personal visit of Jesus to that dark, dank Roman cell but with third-party messengers. And his ministry ended with his head being served on on a platter to a spoiled girl because she had a bitter mother. How would you evaluate John the Baptist's ministry? Look at John's identity. John chapter 1. Open your Scriptures with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 19. By the way, we are talking about setting our affections on things above. Last week we we talked about Jesus, full of grace and truth. The Word, the Eternal Son, this morning we are considering Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But in doing so, we need to understand a little bit about John the Baptizer. By the way, I'm hearing things, and it's disturbing. There's a preacher just to the northeast of here who's gaining attention, and people are going out to hear him. And we haven't approved it. Here down in Jerusalem, we have not sanctioned this preacher, so we need to send someone up, lawyers and religious elites, to interrogate him. Go find out who he is, speaking as a Pharisee. By the way, we know exactly where he was. John chapter 1, verse 28 says, He was in Bethany across the Jordan, and his name is John. Look at John 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? Well, there hadn't been a prophetic voice in 400 years, and suddenly a man appears out of Jerusalem, out of the wilderness, looking like an Old Testament prophet. And Jerusalem had not given him permission to start preaching. The religious leaders of Israel sent a group to question John. They asked five questions. 
Four questions are designed to identify him. The first question is pretty simple. They ask him who he is. What they really mean is, are you the Messiah? This is what they have been anticipating throughout the entire Old Testament ever since Genesis 3, verse 15. He probably knew that's where, where they were headed with the question. So look at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. Christos and Messiah are the same thing in two different languages. I'm not the promised deliverer. I'm not the promised rescuer. Second, they ask if he's Elijah. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Well, that seems like an odd question since Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years. But these are the lawyers and the religious elites of Jerusalem. They knew exactly what to look for. Let me read to you Malachi 4.5. Remember, as a land bridge between the Old and the New Testaments, you have Malachi and Luke. This is what Malachi says towards the end of his prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. These men knew to look for Elijah. It's interesting that John really didn't understand that he was that Elijah. He looked like Elijah. It said, now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. That's what Matthew records. In 2 Kings, it says Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. I think it was on purpose that John came out of the wilderness looking like Elijah. It's interesting what Jesus said about John. Matthew 17, 12, he says to his disciples, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. Yeah, they separated his head from his shoulders. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Whose hands? The hands of the ones questioning John right now. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. He actually was. He didn't lie. He just didn't know that he was fulfilling that office. Third, they asked John, look at verse 21, the second part, are you the prophet? Not a prophet, but are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They're trying to pinpoint the threat. They're on edge because of this popular wilderness ministry, and they did have in mind probably the prophecy of Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And you must listen to Him. It's fascinating when Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, what two people appear next to Him? Moses and Elijah. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets. These two key individuals. A prophet like Moses, and you have the forerunner Elijah. Well, they're actually not far off. Peter quotes in his sermon in Acts 3.22 that you missed the prophet, and you crucified him. And this is where the religious leaders erred. They thought the prophet and the Messiah were two different people, but they're actually one individual. 
Both Peter and Stephen condemned the religious leaders because they not only missed the prophet, but they killed him. You know, it's possible for professing Christians like the religious leaders to miss the prophet, miss the Messiah, to miss the Word become flesh, to miss the Eternal Son, because we are so fixated on and blinded by religion and religious titles and systems and structures and threats to our institution. And we go around judging with an inflexible list of laws and we get so fixated on those things we miss Jesus sometimes. The leaders finally ask John straightforwardly who he is. Look at verse 22, John chapter 1. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Well, in his answer, he alludes to an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Look at John 1, 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. See, John understood his ministry to be the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. By the way, the context back in Isaiah chapter 40 was the return of the Jewish exiles. The Jews are in slavery. And they need deliverance. And God is prophesying from Babylon, I am going to bring My people out. And the road is not smooth. And it's dangerous. And you need to go out and smooth out the way because I'm about to bring salvation to My people. This is what John is doing in the wilderness. Make straight a path for God, interestingly, the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes unto the Father except through Him. Make straight, make smooth a way for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Basically, in essence, in the wilderness, He's crying out, prepare yourself for God's salvation. But they respond with another question. By the way, be careful of people who ask questions but aren't really looking for answers. They're looking to make a statement. They're not really hearing your heart. They're simply there to make a point irrelevant to the facts. Look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. In case you forgot that point, John brings it up again. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet. He already answered, but they weren't listening. He was commissioned by God to do this. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a visible picture that we are preparing our hearts for the coming Messiah. By the way, throughout this confrontation, little side note here, John's humility shines. And the Pharisees and the scribes' arrogance and condescension is on full display. John's response is humble. Notice he never talks about himself. They ask him what right he baptizes by, and he simply points them to Jesus. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. I'm here to prepare the way for Him. If I had been John, I would have probably said something like, do you, do you want to know who I am? 
I'm the last of the Old Testament prophets. My daddy was a faithful priest. You might have heard of him, Zechariah. My birth was declared to my father by an angel while he was serving in the temple near the altar of incense. My mother is Elizabeth. She was close to Mary. You know, the mother of Messiah. Wouldn't that be fun to do this to the Pharisees? You're like, you do that too naturally. The Holy Spirit empowered me for this mission when I was still in the womb. The Son of God called me the greatest man ever to walk the face of the earth. He hasn't said that yet, but it's going to be recorded in Matthew 11, verse 11. The Messiah is my cousin. Let me repeat that. The Son of God is a blood relative. Do you have any other questions about my ministry? And they would have to simply say, but he doesn't. You know what John does? Look to Jesus. Here comes Jesus. Here's the Lamb of God. That's all He does. Part of my ministry is to keep pointing people to Jesus. I cannot transform a single heart. All I can do is keep pointing people to Jesus. I can point them to the streams of living water, but I cannot force them to satisfy themselves with the water. That's what John is doing. In Matthew 3.11, he says, I bat- listen to his humility, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Humility. So in our answers, let's talk less about religion and more about Jesus. That will make this local body attractive and attractional, if you would, when we make much of Jesus. This is what he says in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase. And those of us who gather as highlands must decrease. So who is the one that must increase? Quickly, look at the second part. We have John's identity... He's a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for Messiah. And what is his message? Look at verse 29. John begins his message with a remarkable statement. Here is the Lamb. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me, the eternal Son of God, now in the flesh, the Word. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb? Remember, John's father was a priest. You do know him. His name is Zechariah. He would go into the temple and priests would sacrifice a lamb every morning and every evening to a day, not just during the Passover feast. John would have been very familiar with with the importance and significance of lambs and the blood and death associated with sacrifice in the temple. Jesus entered Jerusalem, interestingly, on the same day the Paschal lambs, or the lambs chosen to be sacrificed during the Passover feast, were selected in Jerusalem. It is also significant that just before Jesus was crucified, sacrificed As a lamb, he was observing the Passover meal. It is also significant that when Jesus was crucified, it was in the springtime 
of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All these points are coming together so that we don't miss the significance of what John said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First of all, what does it mean that Jesus is a Lamb? Four quick points. The Lamb provides deliverance. John identified Jesus as the Lamb just days before the Passover. Look at John 2, verse 13, if you have your Scriptures opened. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John had already declared, here is the Lamb. And see, the Lamb was the centerpiece of the Passover The first Passover was celebrated back in Exodus chapter 12. Many of you know this because you love the book of Exodus. There were ten plagues or ten signs and wonders. You remember some of them. The water to blood, the lice, the frogs, the death of all the cattle in Egypt. But only one of those plagues gets a name. Only one of those plagues actually has a feast to commemorate that event year after year after year all the way up until this year. But first, before Exodus 12, you've got to go back to Exodus chapter 1. And Exodus chapter 1 is fascinating because what you read in Exodus 1, let me just read to you the first verse of Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. They came to Egypt... And as a result, they came into bondage. There is no deliverance without first being enslaved to something. Here's the historical development that radically altered life for the Hebrews in Egypt. Exodus 1 verse 8, there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Exodus 1.11, they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Exodus 1.13 and 14, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their life bitter. But it gets worse because slavery, as often as slavery does, moves into systematic killing. And in Exodus 1, verse 16, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. By the way, that's disturbing news for both boys and girls. To keep the daughters alive and to drown the sons in the Nile is bad news. Slavery and death dwell together because Satan is a bloodthirsty dragon who was a murderer from the beginning and did not abide in the truth, Jesus says in John 8:44. We are given then a glimpse of God's power in chapters 7 to 12, and, and we know these as the plagues. As we approach the tenth and the final plague, the tenth and final sign, here is the setting. The residue of blood is probably still caked on the banks of the Nile. The discomfort and irritation of frogs and lice and boils have taken its toll on everybody's emotions. The stench of rotting cattle is in the air. And if that isn't enough, people have suffered loss from hail and locusts and thick darkness. And God's people, the Hebrews, aren't sure they want to follow Moses. And listen to what Pharaoh says in Exodus 10. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. In the midst of all that, you have the final sign. In Exodus, do you know what that means, by the way? Exodus? It simply means out from or out of. It is a term of deliverance. So you have this slavery and captivity, and now you need an exodus. Words like this are used in Exodus. Brought out, brought up, delivered, redeemed, saved. And by the way, so we don't miss the point, Israel's physical bondage in Egypt pictures the spiritual bondage of each one of us in the kingdom of darkness. When John says, Behold the Lamb of God, he's talking about deliverance. We are told in Exodus that they were to choose a lamb. They were to keep it for four days. Then they were to kill it and take the blood and smear it on the side posts and the top post of the door. Then they were to eat the lamb a specific way. So there is death, there is shed blood, and there is the internalization of the truths that were just practiced. What we learn about deliverance, even deliverance provided by God, is that it costs a life. There is no deliverance without the shedding of blood. And so we come to the second point. The Lamb not only provides deliverance, but a sacrifice. It's the Passover. He says that when I see the blood, I will what? He's going to send a death angel. There's actually a psalm in your Old Testament hymn book that talks about a band of destroying angels. And when God sends them, the only thing that keeps you safe is that Exodus 12:13. when I see the blood, I will pass over you. By the way, what was the warning? What was the threat? If I don't see the blood, what will happen? The death of who? Firstborn son. Who were the Egyptians told to throw into the Nile? The sons. Now God, in a sense of poetic justice, is going to strike at that same nerve, but not without compassion. Because Isaiah says one day He will in love crush His own son. All these points are coming together. And in this Lamb, there is deliverance. And in this Lamb, there is a sacrifice that when God sees the blood applied to the door, I will pass over you. At the heart of the Passover ritual is the killing of a lamb, death, the smearing of its blood, shed blood, and the eating of its meat, which sounds a lot like John chapter 6 when he says that he is the bread of life. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. By the way, it was during that point in Jesus' ministry where everybody stopped following Him except His own disciples. How would you evaluate the success of Jesus' ministry in John 6? The Passover exodus of the Old Testament is the same as the Passover exodus of the New Testament. Just listen to this. Draw your minds in and listen to what Luke says in Luke 9. 
Some eight days after these sayings, Jesus took along Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of Jesus' face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure which he was about to to accomplish in Jerusalem. Departure. Do you know what the Greek word used for departure is? Exodus. Here you have Moses and Elijah talking about a going out that the Lamb will provide so that you can come in and be accepted by God. What we also come to find out is the Lamb provides deliverance and a sacrifice, but it is also a substitute. Listen to Exodus 12:21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. What if they chose not to? What if they just said, You know what? The Egyptians aren't really doing that. You know, let's identify with the Egyptians. What if in your sensory experience all you see are the palm trees and the Nile River and the world superpower of the day and the strength of the military and you're like, you know what, it's really not worth it to kill a year-old lamb. Besides, my daughter gave it a name, Fluffy, right? How can we, you know, it doesn't matter how you sort of come in and reason. If you do not kill the lamb, you know what you wake up to? The death of the sun the death of the firstborn. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs. It's a substitute. And carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Matter of fact, John knows very well this is the Passover Lamb because he said that the Scripture is fulfilled in that this truth was said, not one of His bones will be broken. The same thing that was said for the Passover Lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And finally this morning, the lamb provides satisfaction. Listen to Isaiah again. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Do you know why? Because Jesus knew very well why he was born. He was born to die as a sacrifice for sinners. In Revelation 5, we get a brief glimpse of worship in heaven where you have God on the throne and by his side, this incredible picture of the triunity of God, you have someone. We hear that it's the lion from the, the tribe of Judah, he has conquered. And we are given a glimpse in this throne room, this heavenly throne room, and when they turn, what do they see? 
It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John says, when I turned and saw, I saw one as a lamb who had been slaughtered. And then he sees people bowing all around and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive riches and power and glory and honor. Jesus did conquer sin, death, and the devil by sacrificing Himself as our substitute. A lamb offered to God for you. That's why John can say, Behold, he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, quick application. What do we do with this amazing truth? First, doesn't it seem easier in the Old Testament economy that if you sin, let's say this last week, you just had this horrible dark episode of sinning wouldn't it almost feel better to just go to the temple and carry your lamb in and be like okay and then it's killed and you're like i don't have to carry that one around anymore right very clear picture and then the priest says it's taken care of it's atoned for do you know you have something better than that hebrews 9 says this for christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not into an earthly temple as a priest, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly. I don't know about you, but if I was like a middle-class Israelite, how many lambs would I have to keep carrying in for my sin? In the year 2023, we're already in July. How many lambs would I have had the priest sacrifice for me? It says that nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, listen to this, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Did you sin this last week? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you sin this morning? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. That's good news for sinning Christians. That's good news for unbelievers. There's a Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Second, the mission of the church is to point the world to Jesus. That's what John does. Hundred years after the Apostle John died, Tertullian wrote this about the spreading influence of Christians. He said, We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temple of your gods. Faithful Christians pointing others to Jesus, pointing others to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What will that take for us to be effective in that mission here? Well, John is often called a witness. He's mentioned 89 times 
in the Scriptures. And he is a witness. A statistic was shared with me this past week entitled, How Do People Start Attending a Church? And I know that's not the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate goal is to introduce them to Jesus, whether we're gathered or not. But it was an interesting statistic. Advertising, 2%. Invited by the pastor, 6%. Organized visitation, 6%. A friend invited me, 86%. You can be a witness by simply witnessing to your friends, person to person, friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor, one of the most effective means of outreach. And finally this morning in application, at the end of his life, we talked about this at the beginning, John doubted. He sent some of his disciples and they asked Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? We don't have a category for this, do we? Not if we're used to judging people by single episodes or seasons of their life. We don't have a category for the rustic forerunner questioning whether Jesus is the Messiah. You're the one that preached that. And now you're doubting it? John had boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. And yet there he is doubting. Don't judge a person by a single episode or failure or struggle or a season of struggle. Listen to Jesus' estimation of John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a frail man? No, frail man. Frail men live in luxury in palaces. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Was he nervous? I'll tell you who you went out to see. I'll tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I don't think John ever saw Jesus again. But he did see Roman soldiers come down and end his life. The great joy of the Gospel is that I don't have to pay for my sin. Jesus paid for it. I don't have to endure the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for me. I don't have to beat myself up about doubts and questions because Jesus Christ has given me the full assurance that God loves me because God loves me. And God loved me so much He sent His only Son into the world that if I believe in Him, I will receive the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to invite the music team forward. I'm going to pray in just a couple minutes, but I would like to give us about a minute or two to just bow our heads, meditate on these truths, pray to God. If you're an unbeliever, God sent a lamb for the forgiveness of your sin. If you're a believer, witness. If you're doubting, take hope. If your confidence is in Jesus Christ alone, take hope. He saves weak, doubting people and He will bring them to glory with Him.